Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can sign up for our regular live Zoom events, including on July 28th, John Eikenbury on the roots of President Biden's foreign policy. Coming up on the show today, Furman de Brabander, author of the new book, Life After Privacy, Reclaiming Democracy in a Surveillance Society. Uh, Furman, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So congratulations uh, on the book. Uh, So why life after, well, what are we going to say, privacy or privacy? Right. Well, I'll say privacy, but you can say whatever you will. Potato, Um, potato. One of the interesting things I discovered in... uh, talking about privacy, uh, my family is from Belgium, my father's Flemish. And in conversing with my Dutch relatives, I noticed they didn't exactly have a word for privacy and they would actually use the English word. And I, my father-in-law is from Syria and I discovered that in Arabic, there's no exact analog. I discussed this similar thing with someone in China, finding out that there, this, I, you know, they started giving me suspicion that this idea of privacy might be rather culturally bound uh, in the Anglo-American world. And so that really, you know, drew out my suspicions about the pedigree and the heritage of this word and the meaning of it, frankly. Yeah, I mean, it is one of the things that uh, you say kind of very early on that you kind of raise this question about really what even is privacy? Absolutely. Um, it, you know, reflecting, I grew up in the States, in the United States, reflecting on my own experience here, I noticed that, you know, and in conversation with my own students, college students, I also teach adult students, you know, so across the ages, there is a widespread assumption that privacy is important and that we, we know what it is. And the more and more I poked at that, I found that that was absolutely not the case. And I think one of the reasons that we assume it to be, uh, that, we, that we presume that we know what privacy is and we value it is because it has a very you know, special place in American history. Um, as one historian put it, who I quote in the book, he said, you know, the history of America in a way is the history of privacy, right? And the way he puts it is like this, like you could think of the pilgrims, they came to these shores out of desire to be on their own and not be disturbed, which is a kind of privacy. They could practice their faith on their own. And a lot of people, of course, followed them. And then, of course, the revolution, you could understand the American Revolution in a way as motivated by concerns over privacy. The colonists were upset about uh, the way the crown was, uh, you know, invading their factories and stores and, you know, housing troops in their homes. And then the funny thing is, there, the you know, despite this, supposed rootedness of privacy in the American experience, the word private does not come up in the Constitution. It's not even there. And, you know, reading about the legal history of this concept, I noted that it was really only articulated in legal circles a century later by Brand, just, future Justice Brandeis. He was not justice at the time. Uh, he and his colleague, um, Samuel Warren, they were legal scholars, and Warren had been upset you know, in a preview of things to come, he was upset about technology, right? That's what prompted his concerns about privacy. And his point, and this one might be laughable to us all, he was upset about the the photo camera 
and apparently uh, journalists had descended upon his daughter's wedding and taken all these prying pictures and he was irate. They articulated, so they sought out to articulate a right to privacy. And they articulated as the right to be left alone. And it, I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, there are two things that really emerge out of that. One, you make clear time and again in the book that actually uh, privacy and free thinking, freedom of thought are not actually the same thing. But in response to the to the other point, is it just that in the writings of those um, philosophers that uh, the uh, framers of the Constitution were so steeped in, the likes of Locke, that privacy and the connection to property were so rooted that they almost felt that they didn't need to state it explicitly. It was just an it was just a given. That's an interesting idea. Um, I, I think there is definitely some truth to that. Uh, the only thing I would say is this, is that, you know, the way we understand and defend privacy today and the way the courts have come to, come to defend it is actually articulated best by Mill and not by, by Locke. Um, Mill is the one, yes, certainly with Locke, we see the idea of private property, but Mill, we get the full-blown idea of privacy as freedom of thought and freedom of speech, you know, and so, that you know, it's, it's an idea that comes a little bit later. So I guess what I would say is that, you know, the, we, take, we may tend to take for granted today that privacy, I think some people, maybe average folk, tend to think that privacy has always been valuable, has always been there, and that is hardly the case. It is evolving, and it's always been embattled. And the way we understand it today is actually a very recent uh, notion, a very recent innovation. And even while people like Mill and Brandeis were articulating it in the 1800s, we didn't really, people, people didn't really achieve it in the America, in, in America or England until maybe the late 60s or 70s. And certainly the rest of the world, there's many countries where you could say a standard of privacy is not prevalent or even existent. So that I mean that's quite interesting chronologically that if you're saying that really it's in the in the 60s that uh, this kind of achieves it at least in the in the western world that also coincides with the kind of the beginning of computers and mm. uh, the computer age the digi the coming digital age which has changed everything hasn't it and yeah. as you as you say sometimes we're almost at a loss to understand quite how we interact with the internet with the likes of Google in relation to our own privacy in a way that wouldn't be true that if someone walked into my house, I, I understand what's happening there. But the distinction between guest and intruder seems more blurred when it's someone like Google or Amazon, for example. Sure. One of the things that has always struck me, you know, this paradoxical of privacy is at least, you know, I, I reflecting again on the American landscape and I specifically the built landscape, Suburbia is, you know, designed to protect privacy. When it comes to the physical ramifications of privacy, Americans are, you know, they're, they're very devout, right? Um, the American house, the average house has expanded in size with more and more private rooms, and yet the number of people, the average household has fallen since the 1970s. You know, very unsustainable 
state of affairs. So people are very intent on the four walls around them. But then, of course, when it comes to digital privacy, they seem perfectly oblivious. And, you know, I, whenever I ask my students, for example, I say, well, you know you're watched online, right? And they say, well, yes, we know it. But they certainly don't believe that. They certainly don't act that way. I guess what really started my thinking about this book was, you know, the absurd shamelessness of people online that, that I couldn't get over how people were so willing, had been so quickly acculturated and willing to share and not worried about who was watching them, almost as if they felt invisible in front of their computers. Yeah, I mean, you you point out that uh, people can be pretty cavalier, that Google and Apple and so on know more about us than, you know, in some ways that we know about ourselves. But yes. uh, but uh, but on the other hand, I was quite reassured, and you, you say this in a, in a nice light moment in the book, but it was reassuring to hear that you yourself use Gmail and Google search and so on. So, so even you don't live as a hermit. Well, here's the thing. See, um, I'm not a troglodyte. I'm not anti-technology. Um, what I try to do in this book is I try to be realistic. I'll give you, I mean, I have to admit something. When I first started to write this book, it was intended to be a defense of privacy. And the more I thought about it and the more I discussed with you know, my students and colleagues and, and researched, I realized, well, I think, it, I, think, I think I need to embark on a different project, which is to consider that, that privacy might be gone. And, you know, look, if COVID has, has revealed anything, it's that we really have little choice but to be plugged into this digital economy that of its very nature makes our data vulnerable. You know, so I, I wanted to be realistic about it. You know, perhaps privacy is doomed. Then what? How shall we get on? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the points that you make, and it's it's right there in the title that, in many ways, the aim of the book is to think about democracy after privacy. That it, the the implication is that this has already gone, and and you say that this is not a happy task. It reminded me actually of uh, Francis Fukuyama, uh, who's mm -hmm. obviously very much involved with American Purpose, uh, but his famous essay on the end of history, where he concludes by saying that that this will be a sad time. And you seem to share something of that uh, yourself in the way that you're looking at this world after privacy. Well, I mean, I had to admit early on in the book, I look, I like my privacy. I absolutely do. But I am not sure how I can defend it. Um, I have I have four children. I have a busy life. I'm not sure. I'm also <laughs> pushing 50, so I'm not the most technologically adept. I'm not sure I have what it takes to be so vigilant about my uh, privacy, and now I'm adopting your way of saying my privacy. <laughs> and, you know, the more I read today, I'm writing about the Pegasus Project, you know, relations about the spyware that breached the iPhone of all things. The iPhone is supposed to be impregnable. If, if, if there is spyware that can breach that, then, you know, that underlines my, my, my suspicion that, that really, you know, privacy is quite doomed. Um, you know, the more and more I researched this, the more and more I realized it's a very tall order to try and protect your privacy, but we have little choice but to be plugged into this economy. So even though I like my privacy, I think we have to be realistic and we have to understand what this means. And really, so I'm a political philosopher. My thinking was, well, 
forever I've heard about these, these assumptions that, that, that privacy and democracy go hand in hand. Well, what is democracy going to look like if we understand that privacy is gone? How can we understand how citizens can still have power? Um, when their data is in, is vulnerable as, as a matter of course. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? Because, the, you know, the basis of liberalism, it seems to me, has always been that we're accountable for what we say and for what we do, for our actions, not what we think. So our thoughts and feelings are private until we express them in the open. But what you're talking about is a breach of something else, isn't it? That, for example, our health data, things that uh, are kind of intrinsic private to us, but which uh, could be revealed through some kind of hack in ways that uh, would cause us kind of profound discomfort, to say the very, very least. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, the, the, the nature of this digital economy is connectivity and, and exposure. If you want to get the conveniences, uh, which are wondrous, you know, of this digital economy, you really have got to put yourself out there. You have to share your data. And, and, none, and this became, you know, and, and really realized that there's no going back the more I looked at health surveillance and the more I thought about health surveillance. And then, of course, COVID came along and gave me a very real-life uh, lesson in, you know, the importance of surveillance to, to health technology going forward, or medical technology, I should say. You know, I... I um, my father-in-law is an endocrinologist, and in the United States, diabetes is, is a very grave affliction, you know. It's exacerbated by our diet and our lifestyle. And, of course, it is, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest drivers of medical expenses and early, you know, a lot of suffering and early death. And thanks to digital technology and surveillance, doctors believe now that they have, through a variety of products, they believe they have the means to help um, patients, you know, they will monitor patients' uh, diet at a constant basis and their blood sugar levels in, to such an extent that they can actually, you know, reverse the disease. That is a remarkable development. If, it, if, it, if it's type 2, obviously, type 2 yes, diabetes. Type two, yeah. I'm sorry. Thank you for clarifying. Um, yes, but that's a remarkable development for people who are suffering from that disease. And, you know... Um, and then, of course, there's prognostications that maybe, you know, um, certain cancers could be caught early on by nanotechnology that will be implanted and monitoring our, our biological functions. And again, you know, when it comes to, to avoiding those kinds of life-threatening diseases, you know, I think it's obvious people will uh, be monitored during covid the, the emergence of this thing called the Aura Ring, O-U-R-A, which all the NBA players are wearing. It's an incredibly sophisticated device that looks like an ordinary ring. It's very stylish, by the way, and expensive. I don't have one yet. And it monitors your body temperature in the slightest variations. And the reason the NBA got it for all its players, as did the U.S. Olympic team, is that it can pick out the, these COVID outbreaks at the very moment they start. So, you know, the promise of this kind of surveillance when it comes to health indicates that there's really no going back. 
Yeah, and I, I suppose that in, in some ways that's the question, isn't it? That uh, with any revolution, there are always, particularly early on actually in, that, in the process, there are always consequences which can be horrific, but there is also great promise. You know, rather like the Industrial Revolution, you think about the what was going on in the 1830s and 40s as opposed to what was happening by the end of that century and how they'd refined a lot of the processes and the, the human costs of that process. Do you think there will be something similar with the digital revolution that eventually will work these things out as we refine the process? Well, that's exactly where I want to go with this book. Um, you know, my, what I ultimately argue in the book is that, you know, the way to live with the digital revolution is not by saving the private sphere, as if that could be done, as if we could even define what privacy is. Um, because I also cast doubt on the political value of the in, of individual uh, power. You know, ultimately, I argue that the way forward politically is through the public realm. We have got, you know, instead of fortifying ourselves as private individuals, which is a, a, a task in vain, um, we need to reach out uh, politically and socially and uh, I was very inspired by the thinking of John Dewey, the American philosopher, who spoke about, you know, the power of associations. It's, you know, in his writing about democracy, it's not the individual that is the foundation of democracy. It is these associations which enforce and empower them. And, you know, looking across the American social landscape, it's really hard to see these associations anymore. We're so individualized in suburbia and thanks to the digital economy. But, you know, once upon a time, these, these social groups, um, these intermediaries between the government and individuals, they empowered citizens and helped them and gave them power, gave them direction, and crucially, as Dewey put it, you know, uh, trained them and mobilized them politically. And I'm thinking, I, you know, Dewey thinks expansively about these, but these can, be, these can include religious groups, these can include unions, these can include, this include social groups, anything that disposes us to be sociable and to learn how to negotiate differences. Nowadays, we are locked on the internet, alone in our rooms, um, trying to engage with others digitally, and we see what kind of heightened partisanship that gives rise to. You know, there's something to the to social interactions, you know, in the public realm, and I mean a physical public realm, that make a different kind of democratic citizen that I think is the way forward. Yeah, it's one of the it's one of the themes that runs all the way through the book. That you know, it seems to be that actually your real worry uh, is not about individual privacy, but instead what you call the health and vitality of our public life. That's what you're really trying to address here. Yes, yes, and uh, um, absolutely. I mean, um, I see this in my my students. I see this in many different you know aspects of my own hometown. You know, people yearning for uh, a, a vibrant public life. And again, I you saw this in COVID. People were fed up with being isolated. I remember last year going to the beach in the middle of the hygiene, uh, the, the, the pandemic and people were packed into bars unwisely, but it's because they were so craved to be around one another. Um, and in the book I talk about, you know, in the American landscape, the, the shopping mall is the public space by, by de default. 
that's where people go and convene. But it's not even a public space, right? It's private. And if you, it's actually privately owned. And if you go in there and you try and speak your mind politically, you will be ousted. You know, the Occupy movement, Occupy Wall Street, 10 years ago, tragically and ironically, they occupied a private space as well, Zuccotti Park. They were trying to be public. And many of their offshoots in other cities could not find these public spaces that were actually vibrant and visible. Right? There are older public spaces in this country, but they are sidelined and ignored or dilapidated or over. And many of the Occupy movements in these smaller cities, they had to occupy the median strip across from the shopping mall just to be seen. You know, whereas in you know, pre-suburban architecture, a public space, much like Athens Agora, would have been central and plugged in to the community where people would meet and converge and convene. And it's, it is one of the, the things that you end the book by making a plea almost for a kind of a resumption of this, this sense of the public square. You, uh, you quote a, a scholar of Hannah Arendt um, uh, on the banality of evil, where you say that the banality of evil is the inability to hear another voice, the inability to have a dialogue either with oneself or the imagination to have a conversation with the world. That, that's the thought that you choose to leave with uh, in the book. What, why, why is that? Well, as I hear that quote again, I can't help of thinking <laughs> about all the complaints about our online discourse, which seems to be precisely the inability to hear and the inability to speak and listen. And, you know, one thing I argue is that the, that the internet has not proven to be a public realm, right? That was a false road. Um, you know, learning to, learning to speak to other people means that we must be proximate to them, physically proximate to their face, you know, and digital, uh, relying on digital technology has really taken away that talent, uh, for many, especially young people who become so overly reliant on their cell phones. But, you know, there is an art to being with other people even in silence, you know, and not finding it terribly awkward. There is an art to looking at people and understanding them. And I'm, I'm going to give you a quote by Montaigne, which is one of my favorites. I think we're coming to the end here. Montaigne says at one point that, you know, there is a private language and that private language is between lovers and they don't need to speak. They just need to look at each other and they know through practice, of course. Now, I'm not saying, you know, Montaigne says, you know, the way you tilt your head, the way you shrug your shoulders, the way you use your hands. Of course, he was French. They do all these things. But when you, you know, through that kind of silent, mind you, that silent language, powerful things can be conveyed. Now, now citizens don't need to become lovers, but they do need to become practiced in being around one another and understanding one another and listening. You know, and that's why Dewey was so interested uh, uh, in the school, right? The school is where democracy starts. That's where we learn to be around other people. Tragically, when we become adult citizens in America, we are not so much around other people uh, at all. And the privacy of suburbia hurts. 
And I, I suppose the the other side of that is also uh, again leading in from this uh, this uh, quote by Hannah Arendt that uh, she says that all thinking, strictly speaking, is done in solitude and is a dialogue between me and myself. That 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 sense of being able to critique ourselves, of being able to th to think about other ideas, to have a dialogue with ourselves rather than it just being uh, something which is very rigid. This is what I believe. This is what I think, and it mm. and it not being thought about in any kind of reflective kind of a way. Well, that's, you know, actually, that's kind of the illusion that I that I discovered at the core of privacy thinking, which is, you know, privacy scholars like uh, Glenn Greenwald, who helped uh, Edward Snowden with his NSA revelations, he argues that, which is a very popular thought, that why is privacy important? Privacy is important for autonomy. If I don't have private space where I can be left alone, I won't know what to think or what I think, and I won't be certain in my thoughts. And, you know, the more I thought about that, I realized that there's a kind of magical thinking there. You know, this, 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 this illusory to think that I am ever walled off. And I think Hannah Arendt is more correct when she understands, you know, echoing Plato's view that that thought is dialogical, that thought is a dialogue and I learn to think when I'm in dialogue with others and then I practice that on my own. Therefore, you know, autonomy is not something that I discover and produce on my own as if that could be done. You know, my mind, whatever that is, is a product of collaboration uh, and conversation with others. And it is, it is silly to ignore that fact. And that pluralism preserves our humanity, but it also pre preserves our sanity. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I need to be around others to feel sane. COVID has proven that too. So the book is Life After Privacy, Reclaiming Democracy in a Surveillance Society. It's written by my guest, Furman de Braybander, and published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, but for now, Furman, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Music.